Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Ask the Experts. I am Adam Pawatic, and with me is Aaron Cameron. For anybody who is familiar with our webinars, you'd usually see a third face up here. But in this case today, we are the experts. So I'd like to introduce Adam and Aaron of First National Financial. We are going to do a lending panel today. We're going to do a a medium dive. It's not a deep dive, not a shallow dive, but a medium dive into the world of lending. We've only got an hour, so there's only so much we can get through. But it's a world that Aaron and I live in, and you kind of lose sight of the fact that sometimes that if people aren't living and breathing commercial mortgages all day long, that they may not be familiar with a lot of the terminology, the strategies, the current underwriting practices, because they do change over time. So we've got a schedule laid out here. There's kind of five main topics we're going to jump into today. Debt as an investment product, security, underwriting, why commercial loans are not a commodity, and CMHC versus conventional loans. This is the point where I normally welcome our guests, but instead I will welcome you, Aaron. Uh, yeah, and for the record, by no means are we pretending to be experts, <laughs> even though this is Ask the Experts. We just thought it was appropriate, given the conversations that we regularly have, to kind of take a step back and kind of at a high level, medium level, maybe just talk about what finance is, what the nuances are, and kind of go through some of the details that, again, that Adam and I kind of eat, sleep, breathe every day. So Adam laid out the agenda, and so we're going to start high level, and then we're going to get deeper, so just hold on to the rope. First things first, right, that I think some people lose perspectives on, right? It's even if you are in banks, like banks are not the only lenders in commercial real estate. You know, of course, anybody and everyone that has an investment portfolio, whether it's pension funds, credit unions, trust companies, you name it, everybody wants to have a diversified portfolio. And many of those institutions want to have some part of their investment portfolio invested in commercial debt. And so what's curious about First National's platform is that, you know, we ultimately deploy capital on behalf of third-party institutions and that it runs the gamut from investment management companies to pension funds, to life insurance companies, to schedule A banks, basically anyone and everyone that wants to invest in real estate debt can come through First National. We've got this sort of origination platform where we originate mortgages and then we place those mortgages with the capital that fits that risk portfolio. And we'll get into a little bit more of the nuances of what that risk portfolio might look like and how the decisions are made. Why that's important, because it's kind of a curious place to be in the industry where we see every different type of investment strategy, right? Like again, life insurance companies are on the very low end of the risk portfolio or risk strategy. So their interest rates are two, three, four percent, depending on the indices. And we'll get to that versus, you know, certain investment corporations, mortgage investment corporations or whatever it may be, are looking for higher returns on their debt. So they've got a much higher risk tolerance and so are looking for a higher return, upwards of, you know, call it 8, 9, 10, 12%. There's a whole other spectrum of private lenders that are more quasi-equity. We kind of call it mezzanine debt, which is sort of that bridge between true debt and true equity, where they're looking for a return that's not quite equity investment return, which is, again, this is all debatable, but between sort of 15, 20, 25% versus the debt side that is more between sort of three, seven, eight percent And those return requirements are important because obviously the lower the return, the lower the risk. And so I think sometimes it just gets lost in the general sense of things that we're talking to clients and they're asking about why we're being so conservative, kind of have to say at times, well, you're 
the equity. And based on the leverage you're receiving from us, the lender, your returns might be 15, 20, 25%. My returns are three or 4%. So of course I'm taking Well, well Aaron, different- it's worth pointing yeah. out that exactly that our highest kind of risk return structure would bring mortgages in around, you know, like a construction second might be 10, 11% in some cases. And that's the very highest return that a lender can look for. And as you're identifying for an equity position, you know, 11% is kind of a you know, lukewarm return on a lot of investments if there's any risk present. So it is worth mentioning that our idea of risk is not the same as the equity side of the risk. And even in a global context, Canadian lenders are not known to be too adventuresome when it comes to taking on risk. So it does exist on a continuum and is a very easy benchmark for it, which is, of course, the return. Yeah. So that's why we're at that sort of 60, 65, 70, maybe 75% leverage on that lower end of the return. So I'm clearly just by virtue of my leverage, my position in the capital stack, I'm taking on less risk. But that's also why as lenders, you don't necessarily take as much time on due diligence. That's just the reality. You know, We have the privilege of interviewing a whole bunch of property owners or investors in real estate. And they might spend three months, four months diving deep on a potential investment before they pull the trigger. Now they're getting, again, 18, 20, 25% return after leverage on their investment, but they're also taking on more risk. They're the first loss. If something happens on that property, they're the ones losing money first. Lender, hopefully the property doesn't devalue beyond that 65, 70, 75% loan to value range. So we're taking on certainly less risk, which gives us sort of a little bit more latitude to not dive quite as deep as our clients were. Maybe that's a good segue, Adam, into just the way that we look at risk, right? You know, Adam and I kind of created a bit of an agenda here. And I say this to my staff all the time because it's just a real simple way to do a quick litmus test of the quality of the investment. But it's, you know, who is it? What is it? Where is it, right? Like, who? what is the quality of the sponsorship? So who is it? Where is it? Location, location, location is always important in real estate. And then what is it, right? Is it a sixplex? Is it a large industrial platform or a warehouse or fulfillment center? The type of the asset, where it is and who the sponsorship is. And those three things, when you start diving deeper and deeper and deeper, will build out sort of a risk profile. And the way that First National works is a placement kind of platform. Do I want to place this opportunity with one of my capital sources that are 3% return? Or do I want to place it with one of my capital sources that are looking for an 8 or 10% return? That's really the fun part of lending. What is as well when you're talking about the fundamentals we look at, the minute one of those is majorly impeded, the risk factor does go up. If you're missing big on sponsorship or it's an asset type that's not highly liquid, or if you have a bad location, which of course goes against one of the fundamentals of real estate that Aaron just mentioned seconds ago, the interest rates do go up dramatically. You do really need to be taking each of those boxes to at least some level of satisfaction in order to keep an interest rate at a reasonable level. I mean, the contest interest rates we're talking about now, I mean, is worth date stamping where we are, Aaron, because interest rates are changing. We're April 20th, and we're talking about interest rates that are 3%. But there was one, of course, you did miss, and it does relate to first loss, and that is CMHC insured mortgages. That, of course, is for apartments only. But there, you have the lender protected from those losses. And so that's where you will find the cheapest interest rates in the market, full stop. You're in at around 2% on a five-year basis right now. Because that represents the least risk to the lender because you do have a government guarantee involved. We will get into that much more in our fifth quadrant at the end. But Aaron, maybe before we move on to anything else here, why use debt? What does it do for your investment? 
we could do an hour long philosophical conversation on interest rates and cap rates. And anybody that listens to our podcast regularly, we do hit on the topic. Ultimately, the reality is that unlevered return is the cap rate, right? Ultimately, that's the investment return on the cash flow, should there be no leverage. So clearly, if you want to buy an industrial property at a 4% cap rate, you need to leverage it up to increase your return on that, unless you're happy with 4%. But I don't think many people are. If you're buying an industrial building at 4% with no leverage, that's probably more prudent to just buy some ETFs or mutual funds or what have you. So you leverage it up and that changes the return. So that interest rate cap rate conversation, and I'm not an economist by any means, so I don't want to butcher this, but if you're buying an industrial building at 4%, you need an interest rate below 4% in order to make that a positive leverage formula. And so that's why there's that relationship between cap rates and interest rates. And that's why I think lenders probably focus more on cap rates than other segments of the investment spectrum, meaning most of our clients. I think our clients are looking at it a bit more holistically because they can look at it from I'm investing for 10 or 15 or 20 years or whatever their investment horizon might be. They've got different projections of where they think they can move the rents or where they can squeeze the expenses down to generate different operating income growth. So they have just a different metric. And that goes back to my original conversation about, you know, they spend three, four months due diligence, really diving deep. As a lender, you're kind of looking at it going, okay, who is it? What is it? Where is it? Do all those things get checked off? Okay, what's the cap rate? And does this make sense to me? Is the cap rate feasible in comparison to market? Is the interest rate that I think makes sense to this risk profile going to match up with that cap rate? And if those answers are yes, then it's kind of like, okay, well, let's go. Let's put a package together and let's move forward. We are focused on cap rate because day one of our loan, barring products like bridge loans, but you're talking about term debt, which is a large segment of the market, that going in yield is critical to servicing the debt from day one. And so that's what really matters. Whereas, as you said, other areas of real estate that cap rate is not as critical. Michael Betzlel is a, an apartment broker here in Toronto with JLL. And I've seen him get heated on more than one real estate forums panel decrying cap rates as a fairly useless metric. Because as you said, there's just so much else with, the, uh, with these buildings, opportunities for rental growth, even in a couple of year time horizon, that from an investment standpoint, sure, cap rate's something, but it's not the end all and be all. But with lending on a term debt basis, that year one does matter a lot to us. So as lenders, we do spend a lot of time talking about cap rates. That's interesting too, because you know, think about it from a lender's perspective, like we're putting that money out for a term. So if let's call it five or 10 years, whatever the term may be. And we're expecting for that thing, it's kind of like coupon clipping. I want to make sure I'm getting my monthly payments and earning my interest. And after 10 years, I want to make sure that I can get my money back. And so making sure that that year one cash flow is important. And that's another kind of interesting thing that I think that lenders really focus on is the durability and stability of the cash flow. So we're looking at the history. What's the the last five years of revenue look like? What's the last five years of expenses look like? Does that trend look consistent? So can I comfort myself that that trend will probably continue into the future? And therefore, once I put my money out, I'm kind of safe that it's going to be out and I'm going to get my money back in five years plus the interest. So we just take a little bit of a different approach, I think, than most of the rest of the industry when we're deploying our capital. Our entire return is defined right in the commitment letter. Our, our return, we're investing in this real estate just as you know, the equity position is versus investing from that side of it. And our return is already defined. It's defined by the interest rate. If the rental rates explode in the building, we're not participating in that. But we do have the opportunity for downside risk, same as the equity 
And so we really think about the durability. We take a paid year and a year out, and then that exit. There's not a lot of rooms, especially in the lower interest rate products, for a lot of errors for that reason, that we don't ride the wave up with real estate once that mortgage has been set and you're underway. But Aaron, do you want to move on? Is that what well, I saw you hinting at a second ago? Yeah. The nice thing about Adam and I is that we can talk. And so we're going to, we got 45 minutes and I don't know, probably about 10 things to talk about. But if we spend 20 minutes on each one, we're going to work three hours of the session. So let's skip spreads. We were going to talk about just the different indices that are used. I'll list them really quickly because I think if you've ever tried to get a commercial mortgage, that might confuse you because there's the Government of Canada bond and then a spread on top. There's prime, of course, and then a spread on top. You can get a cost of funds. There's a whole conversation around the invisibility of what makes up that cost of funds. And a lot of lenders use it to kind of, I won't want to say hide, but it's just a really difficult indices to track as a borrower because you just don't really know why that cost of funds moves, at least with Government of Canada's, you understand that's just a bond and investment supply and demand. Prime, of course, is set by, I think it's the federal government. I apologize for being ignorant on that. And then there's the Canada Mortgage Bond, right, which is another bond that, again, functions with supply and demand. And that Canada Mortgage Bond, of course, is exclusively for CMHC. I'd like to say, if you have questions, write them down. You can ask afterwards. But let's just keep moving because we've got a lot to cover. Adam, I'm going to do security just really, really quickly because I think it's the most boring of the conversation. But We're doing kind of a finance lending 101 and appreciating how business critical the security is to a lender, I think is important. I've sit on sort of the credit side of things and I would say a good portion of the quote unquote fires I have to put out are related to security. Something's gone on with the security. There's lien periods that haven't expired or we can't get certain documents from whatever, right? The lawyer won't provide it or the client won't provide it. There's problems with title. Like there's just always stuff that goes on. So one, title insurance is really important to all lenders. And I think it's growing in popularity. Tune in tomorrow. We'll be talking to First Canadian Title about the value of title insurance. So I won't get into that today. Some of the other things that I think people may not appreciate, right? We get the mortgage, of course, it's a registered charge on title, which is effectively our kind of potential future ownership in the event that we ever have to take legal action. Then there's assignment of rents, right? So what we do is we get an assignment of the rent so that that's basically our security that in the event of something happening on the property, that I can quickly go and start attorning those rents, collect the rents to make sure I can pay my mortgage or have my mortgage paid by the revenue from the property. There's PPSA or Personal Property Security Act, which is a registration to ensure we have the chat Entitled, the non-affixed or the unaffixed items that are at the properties. A lot of the boilers and washing machines and dryers and all that kind of stuff that in theory could be picked up and walked out. We take security on that also so that in the event that we end up a lender in possession for heaven forbid, that the building can still operate. And then I think the one that I think is the most interesting and maybe we'll have a little bit of a conversation is just the guarantees, right? One of the, the big requirements from lenders is to get Recourse, right? There's non-recourse loans and then there's recourse loans. Of course, our preference is always to have recourse to an entity in the borrowing group that has some strength. Adam, as a salesperson, you probably have this conversation way more than I do, but there's a strong affinity against guarantees. And what kind of conversations do you have with your clients at times about trying to convince them that providing a guarantee is just an important part of the package? Obviously, there is access to our lowest cost funds without it under the right structures and right environment. But guarantee does go a long way towards making those loans work. And from my experience of speaking to people about this, I have found that 
borrowers with some more years under the hood, they are accustomed to less recourse being asked than you find in the current environment. So if you're doing a deal with somebody that hasn't borrowed in a while and they borrowed a lot in maybe the 80s into the 90s, that the recourse wasn't as part of the picture the way it is now. And so that is a common theme that comes up. And then obviously with any big public reporting, real estate owners, they report guarantees. And so they want to limit it for that reason. And so it's usually a balancing act of trying to accommodate all these competing interests. I mean, obviously, some borrowers just, they don't care. They understand it. They know they're not going to walk with the property. They'll sign it. Other ones are trying to manage risk. So it is a bit of a tight rope that you have to walk where all parties are satisfied. Because of course, any mortgage does have two sides to it. There's somebody borrowing the money. And of course, there's the person investing into that mortgage. And you have to make sure that everybody's comfortable with the setup that we've got. But yeah, guarantees are an ongoing issue. I will also say that sometimes with very private groups that disclosing the strength of their guarantee early on in the process, that frequently comes up in conversation where very private groups would rather wait until you are further along in the approval process. But yeah, as a recurring mortgage theme, guarantees would be definitely top three most talked about items on loans straight across the board for all asset types, all borrower types. Yeah, Adam and I offer sort of different perspectives, of course, because he's on the front line discussing with the clients on a regular basis. And I'm kind of usually more on the back end of the business on the credit side, operations side. And, you know, we have conversations at times where we get a conversation that a salesperson would show up and say, okay, I think this is a great deal. Let's go through the who is it, what is it, where is it? It's in a great location. It's a great asset, great history of cash flow. Everything's amazing. Client wants not excessive leverage, but let's call it 70%, which is higher on the higher end. But they want non-recourse. They don't want to provide a guarantee. And it's kind of like, okay, well, at 70% leverage, we require a guarantee. And maybe we can limit it. But then your brain starts going, okay, well, wait a minute. Like, why, as a borrower, it's a great asset and a great location with great history. What is the risk of putting up your guarantee, right? Like, why would you not be willing to say, yeah, sure, 50% recourse, no problem. Like, I believe in my asset. I believe in my investment. I believe that this will perform to the end of time. So putting up a guarantee, quite frankly, has zero risk to the borrower to get to the leverage that they want. And I get it. I'm on one side and I'm sure if a borrower was on the line, they'd be shaking their head saying, no, 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 it's all about us mitigating risk also. But it is that constant dynamic kind of tug of war between providing recourse at a certain leverage versus not providing recourse. Right now, particular asset type really matters. If you're looking at a retail deal, or even you know, go to the furthest or the most damaged asset class hotel on a non-recourse basis, that's going to be a really difficult conversation. If you've got really well-located industrial with a new lease to a real headline kind of tenant, then yeah, the recourse conversation is not going to be as intense. Because even if we look at our worst case scenarios, which of course lenders have to in order to protect our investment, you could release an airport area industrial building in most any market across Canada right now with very little fanfare. So we're not overly concerned about those kinds of assets. But anything that's going to have any prolonged vacancy or issues releasing, then that's when the guarantee is really going to matter. Because now there's no cash flow. Because when we look at properties, we do sell it out quite a bit. And that the property stands on its own two feet. We look at the cash flow in the building and that determines the loan amount. And then we look at a sponsorship group. But those are kind of two independent silos that we look at. And of course, once you remove the cash flow from the equation in circumstances that are not great for the property, then in that case, yeah, you need to know that sponsor is going to be there to step in. And the other paradox of lending, of course, is the groups that have the easiest time getting non-recourse loans are probably the ones the most capable of stepping in in the event of a cash flow disruption. 
Yeah. The irony of that, right, is that we're more willing to give non-recourse loans to the strongest borrowers because it's almost a reputational thing. It goes back to, maybe we didn't emphasize this, but I think it's probably important to bring it up, is that you know one of the overriding high-level thought processes when you're underwriting a loan and looking at the strength of an investment of a potential loan is what's the likelihood I end up being a lender in possession, I end up owning this thing, right? And that's always, of course, worst, worst case scenario is that there's so many negative things that occur on that property that the borrower goes into default or bankrupt or what have you. And recourse is one of those things that I think puts some skin in the game for the client, right? That if they know they've got recourse up and that they're being ultimately held accountable to the performance of that asset, there's a belief, rightly or wrongly, that that borrowing group with that recourse going to try a little bit harder to keep that property afloat. And trust me, it happens. On non-recourse loans, when that property really starts going sideways, there are lots of examples where clients go, you know what? All right, my bad. Here are the keys. It's your problem now. See you later. Because they know they've got basically no skin in the game. Fortunately, it doesn't happen to us or hasn't happened in a really long time, but that's the fear, right? And so that's why recourse is always a critical component to lenders and why we're always looking for it. Okay, let's keep moving. Anything else on that, Adam? No, I was actually going to say, you did set yourself up for a good segue, though, which I don't know if that was just your natural talent. But for underwriting, we've got here lenders think about what happens if they own the property, which, of course, you just talked about in the guarantee. So when we underwrite a property, we do the same math that you're doing for your acquisition or your annual valuation of the value of the property. We're just doing income minus expenses to get into an NOI, applying a cap rate. Now we've got a value. We, of course, then go on for the additional step of a DSCR test in order to get to our loan amount. But we're underwriting it. We are doing so based on if we had to take the property back, because that's the kind of stuff that keeps lenders up at night. And so that's the way we need to underwrite. I have had a lot of conversations with borrowers about, for example, uh, property management. They go, well, I self-manage property so we can take that off and boost up the NOI. Then, of course, the conversation is, well, if we take the property back, will you continue to manage it? And that's the realization that, of course, we will not. We'll always include vacancy for all but the most rock-solid tenants because, yes, there's a low probability of, of an individual tenant leaving. But when we look at our entire portfolio, it doesn't happen that often, but you do see good tenants leave. We're going to use cap rates that are in line with market, but we're taking a year one view. Whereas, as we discussed not too long ago, an investor might be thinking about year two or three of the property and what it's going to look like then, and they're not too worried about year one. So with underwriting from a lending standpoint, it's not formulaic. We do get very nuanced. We will look at properties and get granular to a level that this area deserves a slightly better cap rate than a building even though three blocks away, and here's the identifiable reasons why. We do get into the properties at a very, very granular level. Aaron was being I guess, slightly flippant, and we don't do too much of a deep dive on properties. We do get into it, maybe not as much as a large portfolio transaction for an investor where they'll spend a year working on it. We tend to get our work done in two months, but underwriting is critical. And of course, for me on the sales side, we're the first step in underwriting, but I know that if something ever goes wrong, the first thing that credit, you know, Aaron and everybody who works with him is going to look at is what do we do for our underwriting? So I am responsible to be conservative by nature. Because Aaron would come calling if I didn't. You're the first line of credit defense, ultimately, in our organization. And yeah, thanks for clarifying. It's funny, I was looking at our agenda. We were going to talk about just the due diligence on one of the lower risk assets. To lend money at 3%, which is kind of our low-end conventional financing. Actually, it's less than that. It's like 25 2 and 3 quarter percent today. 
at two and a half percent, two and three quarter percent, if we're lending, let's call it a $50 million loan and getting a two and a half percent return, that's like 130 basis points over the government of Canada bond. So the risk-free investment is government of Canada bond at 100 basis points. If I'm going to only earn an extra 130 basis points above that risk-free investment, like I better be pretty sure that it's no risk. So you're right, I was being flippant. And quite frankly, maybe I'm now backtracking. When you're doing that really low interest rate lending, you probably even go beyond what the borrower will do because you're, again, is that comment of, I'm putting my money to work at a very, very low return. I better not have any issue with getting that money back and earning my interest rate. So even down to the absolute nitty gritty of how many left turns to get to that asset, if it's an industrial distribution facility or what have you, right? Because you want to make sure that there's literally no risk in the deal. Otherwise, you don't get that 2.5% interest rate and you just add basis points until you meet the interest rate, the return that matches the risk for that portfolio. Yeah, out of that 2.5% too, I mean, obviously we have to service that mortgage, monitor that mortgage. We have to worry about upcoming renewals. If there's any losses in a portfolio, that does, of course, erode the return. So at those levels, as Aaron's saying, there's very little room for error. It needs to be very buttoned down. While we're on that topic about Government Canada, of course, being the safest bond, and then we get into our lowest interest rate money. One of the more interesting things that happened during COVID, and one of the metrics that we track over time, is the gap between cap rates and borrowing cost on real estate. And as I'm sure almost everybody knows, as we started COVID, bond rates plummeted, which of course means interest rates went down with it. And the gap between cap rates and borrowing cost was one of the widest it had been in the last 10 years of investing, meaning the last year was actually a great point to invest in real estate, even though cap rates are very low. It was strictly driven by finance. The positive leverage that you could generate from your investments was phenomenal during this period. This, of course, I'm speaking in, in a bubble. Of course, it took a little bit of chutzpah to buy real estate in uh, June of last year, but we did see it happening. But yeah, when Aaron's talking about the risk spectrum going upwards, the borrowing cost is not that much higher than what a GOC would pay. And so the underwriting has got to be just perfect. And we need to see when we're borrowing, at, when we're lending money at those costs, at those interest rates as well. A big part of what we're thinking about is that stability because rental growth is not going to impact our 2.5% return. It's not going to do much for our investment. And so it, it is a critical piece of it. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the next place to go is probably just to talk about sponsorship due diligence too, right? We've kind of talked about it a little bit, but in the underwriting process, having a good sense of the strength of that borrowing entity, individual, whoever it may be, and their history, right, of operations. We're not even going to talk about construction financing because that's finance 201 versus 101. But the ability to demonstrate a history of performance, of execution, right? We're constantly thinking about, has that borrower demonstrated they can execute? Whether it's buying a perfectly stable asset or in more often situations than not, buying an asset that's got some instability to it, whether it's upcoming lease rolls or depressed rents or what have you, and their ability to execute on their plan to turn those leases over and get better revenue or generate better returns on their expense ratios, whatever it may be. They've got to prove they've done it before. One of the challenges, and Adam, I'm going to throw this back to you. Clients often say, what's your mortgage? What's the loan amount? What's the interest rate? And they're asking for a term sheet first. And you're saying, yeah, but I need to know, like, who are you? Who's your sponsorship? What's your net worth? What's the strength of your operations? 
And they'll say, well, give me a loan amount and an interest rate first, and then I'll tell you. How do you manage that conversation? So I started at First National, ended lending in 2012. And so that's a not that long a tenure, but long enough to see some changes in the lending world. And I'll say that that conversation came up way more in my first five years in the business than it has in the last five. It really, at this point, just becomes standard. If we're going to put something on paper, we're going to stick to that number. And we can't operate with incomplete information. So I'll say at this point, I don't run into it too often where we can't get decent visibility into somebody's portfolio in order for us to put out a term sheet. And again, as we talked about kind of with the guarantee issue, I'd say that those two run together. Generally, the groups that prefer to keep more private also don't want to provide guarantees. I don't have any data to back this up. This is purely anecdotal, but I will say that that has been my experience while we're on the topic of sponsorship, the ability to execute is, of course, of high value. But the other thing we do like seeing is, you know, it's great to see a large net worth, but we don't just look at that number. We don't just see a net worth of $15 million and ticks a box and off we go. You need to really look at what it's composed of. Obviously, we like to see things where it's easy to match up the values. Of course, any stocks, any cash, any investments that have a clear delineated dollar value, very easy then. If it's goodwill in a company, obviously that makes it a little tougher for us to understand if it's not something real estate related. And then of course, if we're getting into loans where the building or the property does not self-finance in the sense that the income pays for the mortgage, then we need to understand not just a large net worth, but access to liquidity. If somebody owns $50 million worth of land and nothing else, that's not really a great way to access capital in the event of an interruption of cash flow on an asset that they are purchasing. And so I would say that not all net worths are created equal in terms of a lender relying on it. Not to say that if somebody has a net worth with items that we are not fully compatible with, that they're not worth that money, but just for our purpose of evaluating it's great if it's things we understand, especially real estate, of course, any real estate in a net worth statement takes two boxes. One, it shows experience in the asset class. And then two, obviously, it's easy for us to understand those values and if they do make sense. I mean, that's probably a good point too, right? We see it as a partnership, right, with our clients. Hopefully, it's not one-off lending. I mean, our preference, of course, is to build strong relationships and have repeat clients. That makes it easier and easier. But for any borrowers out there that are looking to create relationships, when you get that client that says, I'm not willing to disclose anything to you, just tell me what your loan amount interest rate is. I mean, that starts the relationship off at a kind of a sour note because clearly you aren't willing to trust us. So it's tough to reciprocate. And or those clients that come in with, like Adam said, not all net worths are created equal. I've seen it multiple times where it's so-and-so has got a net worth of, I make numbers up, $30 million. But when you start looking into it, you see that, well, it's just two pieces of land that they bought two years ago for a million dollars each. But if they can get the zoning done and build the buildings and sell the buildings, then it might be worth 30 million. So you know, immediately you're looking at it going, well, that's not really accurate. That's a future projection based on a whole bunch of assumptions. And you know, again, back to that comment about building partnerships and trust and respect. As soon as you start seeing those things, okay, well, now I'm going to start digging a little bit deeper, right? So if you're looking for advice, if there's anyone out there, the more transparent and open and honest you can be with your lender, the more they're willing to trust you and the better service you're going to get. Like it just, it goes both ways. So it is interesting at times. And we deal with clients from all different sides of that spectrum, but I can put words in Adam's mouth. I know that when he has a new client that's a prospect and they're coming forward, transparent and honest and open, it's probably a breath of fresh air for you. Oh, a hundred percent. Because then it makes it much easier when I go to to credit, to get you credit people to sign off on my loans if there's full visibility into the deal. And it just makes the process easier. I mean, I don't want to use the word 
retrading. But if we're operating partial information, we might be able to give a pretty good idea of where we're going to be in loan terms. But then if something that wasn't disclosed comes up, that it does, of course, change loan terms. And I hate that, I'm sure, as much as anybody else does. So yeah, doing the deep dive really does help. It also then allows me to better structure, better work with, get better results with clients that are maybe trying to work with me on a portfolio basis to prove that net worth statement we referred to a couple of times. Just to finish this off and then we'll move to the next section. Typically, Adam and I are texting each other, but we've got about 10 minutes left, Adam, so don't lose track of time. When we interview some of the larger institutions and some of the more established individuals in our industry, they've really figured out that that reputation, that relationship goes a long way. I can't remember who it was now telling the story, but it was an individual that runs a very, very large portfolio. And this is back in the 90s when the whole world kind of shut down. And a major bank kind of called all the borrowers in and said, we're really sorry, but the world's shutting down. Uh, and so you need to pay us all back. We're calling all loans. And everybody was kind of got smacked and walked out going, oh my goodness, how am I going to come up with this money to pay the loan back? And then they said, hey, wait, you come back here. And the bank manager kind of pulled that guy back and said, don't worry about you. You're okay. You will keep your loans on the books. And it was just because he'd done such a good job of building a relationship with that bank that they were more lenient to him than they were to anyone else. And I wish I could remember the individual who told that story, but it's always stuck with me, right? That those relationships do matter in the hardest times. And so I guess that's good messaging. I have no segue for this, Adam, but maybe that is the segue about, you know, it's not a commodity, right? Like this is something that as lenders, we battle all the time of what's your loan amount? What's your interest rate? And I suspect the borrowers going to five different lenders going, what's your loan amount? What's your interest rate? And they get five different bids and they're just looking at them going, okay, well, this interest rate is one basis point lower. That loan amount is $100,000 up and they're picking the one that makes the most amount of sense. And Adam, I'm going to throw it to you because you're the one on the front lines that has this conversation way more often. What is it that you're saying to your clients? When that client's saying, hey, this gentleman or this other lender is two basis points lower What's the response when you're trying to justify that it's not a commodity, that you can't compare interest rate to interest rate? Yeah. I mean, if you look at a term sheet will be five or six pages. A commitment letter can be, oh, I mean, some of them (laughs) pushing 40, 50 pages, but we'll call it 25 for most of them. An interest rate and loan amount, that just appears on one line of one page of the commitment letter. There's a whole lot more that goes into it that you are going to care about. Without a doubt, interest rate and loan are important. It's a big driver of return for the investor. And you know, largely, that's why people are getting into real estate. But outside of those two metrics, there can be other yield-enhancing tools that not all lenders are going to either have or deploy in the same way. Quick closings. I mean, we saw in February a big run-up in interest rates as bonds came up. If you're trying to close a deal in that time frame, if you can shave a week or two off of your closing, that could have saved you 20, 30 basis points. The other one that works really well is the early rate lock. The same idea, rising interest rate environment becomes critical. You can lock in rate well ahead of your closing. You take a lot of interest rate risk off the table. It's nice to have in normal times, but in volatile times, of course, it becomes even more so. Loan structures that can add flexibility. We can do structures that involve ABs, syndications, we can do second mortgages. We've done structures at First National that allowed borrowers to get to the ground earlier on construction projects than they would have otherwise. And everybody knows in construction projects, time is the death of return. If you can put together your pro forma before you get a shovel in the ground, throw in an extra six months and see what it does to your return. So there's a lot that a lender can do outside of two very important things, which of course is interest rate and loan amount, that can enhance your return. They don't always get valued the way they would, but you know, sophisticated borrowers definitely do get it that having a flexible partner that can deliver 
a full range of options is going to give you a better results than maybe worrying about five basis points on the, the face rate of the mortgage. Let's take a time out for a second and just, I'm going to pat Adam and I on the back. I think we've worked really hard of not making this like a first national commercial. I don't think we've mentioned this is what we can do once. However, I will point out all those things that Adam just mentioned, we can do very well. Okay, let's keep moving. We got six minutes left. So CMHC versus conventional. We could spend an entire hour on CMHC. We do a ton of CMHC business at First National and I think really understand that product. Why don't we focus more on CMHC, Adam, just for the last couple of minutes here about just what it is and what the value is. I mean, you already mentioned that interest rates are lower. I think right now they're, what's it, it's one and a half percent for a five-year versus sort of two and a half percent for a five-year conventionally. So there's a hundred basis point difference. And I think historically that's probably fairly accurate. I mean, again, general rule, but Interest rates for an insured mortgage are about 100 basis points less than a conventional mortgage. But some other values I think get lost at times, amortization extensions. Like in the conventional world, 25-year AM is standard. I think for the right asset, for the right borrower, I think we're seeing conventional lenders get more comfortable with a 30-year amortization. But CMHC, you literally pay a 25 basis point surcharge and we can go all the way up to almost, I think it's 40 is standard now, right, Adam? Yeah, yeah, 40 years is offered by CMHC. And the critical part as well with 40 year amortizations, we mentioned earlier that debt service coverage, of course, is a limiting factor on loans. And for apartments which have very low cap rates and very low yields, in some case, when you're buying them in today's market environments, having a longer amortization period will facilitate debt service coverage restrictions. You'll be able to get better loan amounts than you would in the conventional market just because of the distinction of having a 30 year amortization versus a 40. You know, one of the other ones that gets lost at times, I mean, again, for the major, major institutions, I think they can go to some of their banks and probably life insurance companies and get access to 15 and 20 or maybe even 25 year term mortgages, but they're not readily available and will save you the economics behind the scenes. But you just think about a life insurance company, they're investing money for 25 years. They've got to match it up to a liability that has that same duration. So that's really, really challenging. On the CMHC side, because the mortgages are insured, we have access to sort of the mortgage-backed securities market, right? The MBS market, which allows us to basically bundle the mortgages and sell them as bonds. So that there's a different access to capital on when the mortgages are insured, which readily there's availability of the 5 and 10 year. I mean, there's no question you can access 5 and 10, but there's been an increase in the ability to access longer terms more readily than in the conventional market. Again, just because of the access to the securitization market. Again, I think people lose track of that. For a lot of family-run institutions, when you've got an asset that you're looking to kind of just put away for the next generation, putting a 15 or 20-year term mortgage on today, particularly that says interest rates, I won't even throw numbers out there, but the interest rates are really low for that 15 or 20 years that you just basically turn that investment into just a coupon clipper for the next 20 years. That will just continue to turn out a return for the next generation. Well, it's worth mentioning as well that yeah, the five and the 10 are available all the time with CMHC and to all borrowers. You know, as Aaron already alluded to, 10-year money on a conventional basis has been spotty. It's available sometimes, other times it's not. And it's also really only available to kind of the top slice of the borrowing world. The institutional borrowers can get access to it or very well-heeled privates. But for a lot of the borrowing world, is not there. Whereas Aaron and I could go out buy a sixplex tomorrow and put 10-year money on it. And if we did it last summer, we would have done it at all-time historic lows, had easy access to it, 
and we would be loving our mortgage for the next 10 years, the interest rate we managed to secure. Otherwise, we would never have access to that kind of capital. Well, it probably means the only way we could buy that building was through CMAC insurance because of the leverage you can get. Again, they go up to 85% of loan to value. We can debate what value they use to determine that leverage, but that's the next session. In theory, they have a higher leverage, lower interest rate, longer amortizations, more readily available access to longer term. So when you start going through all the attributes, anybody that's investing in apartment buildings, it really is a no-brainer to take the CMHC option. You know, the last thing we'll mention, I think, Adam, before we go to the Q&A, where I guess we're going to ask ourselves more questions, the concept of a peri passu mortgage, and I'll do this really quickly. There's first and second mortgages, which are different registrations on title. The first mortgage, of course, being the senior rank ahead of the second mortgage. CMHC has this function called a peri passu mortgage, which basically means equal in rank in Latin or you know, some other language. And so what that allows you to do basically is access equity. So we have a lot of clients that, you know, they might have done a 10-year mortgage eight years ago. Of course, the value of the property is appreciated significantly, but they've got two years left on their 10-year term. They don't want to wait two more years to access that equity. So you're coming through, rather than doing a second mortgage, which can be more expensive, you can do a peri passu mortgage, which is basically like a top-up effectively and get access to that equity before waiting for the end of your existing mortgage. And they're basically like another first mortgage. So again, just another attribute that I don't think really exists in the conventional space that really makes CMHC attractive. We know that you love CMHC as much as I do, but we are at a time, Aaron, and we do actually have questions from Ref Club members. So for anybody who is not a Ref Club member, the structure we do here is the first 45, 50 minutes is an open dialogue for anybody to listen to what we're saying. But if you want it to be a two-way conversation, we do jump in next for the Ref Club members who can ask us questions directly for all your burning lending questions that you've always wondered about. This could be your chance if you're a Ref Club member. But if you're not, this is where we do part ways. I hope that was exciting. I mean, I enjoyed that conversation, but we talk about this five days a week, so it's a little bit different. Thanks, everybody, for taking the time out and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.